Hello, and welcome to Think Like a Game Designer. I'm your host, Justin Gary. In this podcast, I'll be having conversations with brilliant game designers from across the industry with a goal of finding universal principles that anyone can apply in their creative life. You can find episodes and more at thinklikeagamedesigner.com. In today's episode, I speak with Ryan Sutherland. Now, Ryan may not be a name that you know, but it is a name you should know. Ryan is one of the most talented designers working with me at Stoneblade Entertainment. And prior to working with me, he was one of the finalists in the Great Designer Search for Magic the Gathering. He also worked on the Hex Digital Trading Card Game. And Ryan is the lead designer of the most recent expansion to Shards of Infinity, Shadow of Salvation. So we dig a lot into the process of designing Shadow of Salvation, uh, which is a really fun and really intriguing challenge that I was really happy to work with Ryan on. Uh, we talk about deck building games and a deep dive into the mechanics of deck building games and how to think about designing them and developing them. We also talk about the differences between designing a cooperative game and a competitive game. And in fact, Shards of Infinity started off as a very competitive uh, deck building game is very one-on-one centric and uh, you're attacking other players directly and transforming that into a cooperative game with Shadow of Salvation where you're working together to take on ever-increasing difficulty of villains in a choose-your-own-adventure storybook where we even have an audio version that will like read of a professional actor read the story to you as you work together. Uh, it was a really fascinating challenge and something that I had never really done that kind of a deep dive before and so we break that whole process down in this podcast chat. Uh, in addition, we talk about uh, digital games and physical game design differences, user interface design, uh, the keys to creating and releasing tension as the centerpiece of your design, and much more. Ryan is an incredibly talented, incredibly promising designer. Uh, I would feel very lucky to have him as part of my team, and I felt like I owed it to the world to share him with the rest of you. So I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. So without further ado, here is Ryan Sutherland. Hello and welcome. I am here with Ryan Sutherland. Hey, Ryan, how you doing? Hey, doing great. How are you? I'm doing really good. This is this is actually really fun because uh, you know most of the time I do these interviews and we have chats. It's uh, you know people I don't get to see that often, uh, but you I get to see pretty much every day. Uh, we work together, and so it's uh, this is actually going to be fun to have this form of conversation. Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of interesting to be so formal about just talking with you, but yeah, I'm excited. I uh, I always start these episodes in the same way. Um, you know, a lot of the people that are listening are aspiring game designers, people that want to get careers in the industry um, for uh, giving a story about how you got into the industry. What brought you here? What's kind of your, your unique origin story that got you into game design and, and got us to be working together? Sure. Yeah. Um, well, I was like a lot of those people who are listening. I was interested in game design, but honestly, I didn't even think like it was something that people could like easily get into. And, you know, I'm, I'm not saying it is something everyone can get into very easily, but uh, for me, it was kind of like, there's a lot of luck and there's a lot of, you got to just keep mo- moving forward, I think. Um, so for me, I got my first gaming scratch from uh, like playing Magic the Gathering, like a lot of people. And I ended up into in their first great designer search. So the great designer search was an apprentice style game show that Wizards of the Coast did, where they were were looking for new game designers from everywhere around the world. 
It started out with a thousand people, I believe, thereabouts, and they whittled it down to 16. And every week we would do different challenges based on uh, Mark Rosewater and the various people at Wizards of the Coast who would look for new things from the designers. And eventually they ended up hiring uh, three of, three or four of those designers. Uh, I was not one of them. I was, I did, I did very well in the competition and made it almost to the last round. Uh, but it did keep, it, it did spark that drive in me that like, this is something that I could actually do. And I kept thinking about it and kept moving forward and trying to um, find new avenues to, to become a game designer. And several years later, in 2014, I had the opportunity to work on Hex Shards of Fate, which was a Kickstarter digital card game. And at that point, I was living in Houston and had the opportunity to either, you know, continue in my field that was finance, which is what I went to school for, or, you know, take a flyer, move out to California and see if I could jump into the gaming gaming industry, which luckily, you know, that was over five years ago now, and I, I haven't looked back. It's been it's been a blast ever since then. That's awesome. There's a lot I can relate to uh, in that story. Um, so I want to go back and pick up pick a couple pieces of this up. Uh, so first thing is when you go to join the Great Designer Search. Now this is mm -hmm. thousand people. All you know, what made you think that you could do this? What made you decide? A lot of you know, I'm sure there's not even if a thousand people applied, there's tens of thousands of people or more that want would love to have that chance. Why did you decide to to make that leap and and, and try to try to go for that? Yeah, it was kind of one of those things where it's like, you know, might as well. You like it's going to go to somebody. I think I'm good at this. I think I'm going to have a good shot. So I was like, sure, let's let's do it. Why did you think you were good at it? Um, yeah, that's a good question. Uh, you know, at some point you have to have faith in your own instincts. And I felt like my instincts were good and this would at least test them. If maybe I wasn't good, but I felt like I felt I had enough confidence in what I could do and I was going to, I was going to test myself. Even if I failed, at least I could learn something along the way, you know? That's great. I mean, and, and this is sort of a lesson I hear and try to echo myself constantly, which is that like that, you know, willingness to, you know, sort of trust your instincts, put something out there and, you know, with reasonable certainty, know that things are going to hit walls and aren't necessarily going to work, but you're going to learn and get up and go again. And that's, the next thing I wanted to touch on from the story, which is like, okay, you went through, you did the challenge, you got pretty far, but then, you know, you didn't get hired. So arguably this would be a failure and a setback that maybe could have stopped you in your tracks. Yeah. I could, you could see it that way, but you know, like I said, there was a thousand people. I ended up as one of the top four or five. That's I don't see that as a, as a setback or as a failure. Right. I mean, obviously I was disappointed. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And that's and that's where like I often again, even, you know, when I have conversations with the most successful designers out there, you know, that everybody, you know, your designs and your goals never all work out the way you want. That's if in fact, if they do, if you always hit your targets, that means you're not aiming high enough. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and so you taking that leap, being willing to trust your instincts, being able to put yourself out there against the whole world of magic players and people who want to be magic designers and coming out near the top gave you a huge leg up and gave you move move forward. Um, and then of course, when you applied for other jobs and started moving down the other fields, that was a key, 
component to it. Oh yeah, definitely. And, and it's just like, okay, sure. I, here's where I fell. And, but you know, and you, you, you take the hit and you got to keep moving though. Cause I knew I was good, but just not quite, you know, I couldn't get over that last hurdle, but you just keep moving forward and you, you eventually will get over those hurdles and you'll, you'll find new avenues as long as you keep moving forward. Yeah. And one of the things that I, you know, you talk about your design instincts and this is, this is cool because this is sort of the first time in one of these conversations I can sort of speak from the other side here because, uh, you know, I hired you because your design instincts are awesome. Um, <laughs> you're, and, and I discovered you in part because, you know, you were working with friends of mine and people I knew and had hired from the team in, in Hex and I'd known about the designer search. And then we were able to have a conversation and a couple and it was just instantly clear to me that you, you know, you were spot on with your design instincts. You had a lot of like great insight and the right kind of attitude for this job. And so it's been very cool to now, and then what we've been, so what, two years plus now we've been working together. Um, I, I, no, not even that, like a year and a half, I believe. A year and a half. Crazy. Yeah. So, you know, and in that time now, not only have you been able to add huge value to the projects that were running when you kind of got here, but now you've been able to build some of your own projects um, that are going to be coming out soon. Uh, and one of the ones that you lead designed, which I really want to talk about, is uh, Shards of Infinity Shadow of Salvation. Uh, so uh, first, uh, with, for the Shards of Infinity brand and being able to come on and, and, and work on a project like this, what, what was it like and how did it differentiate it from things you've done in the past? Yeah, so... I've definitely never worked on specifically a box product before. Like when I worked for previous games, it was like this evolving game um, where you're kind of building new cards, but you're not, you're not creating a product that people are going to pick up off the shelf. And immediately this is, this is exactly what, what they're going to be playing through. And it it was also interesting because it was one of the first times I came into a product that already kind of had a life, of its own. Like I had already played shards before I had even worked for you. So it was interesting and daunting to try to take on um, a product that already existed. And I didn't, I, I love shards already. So I was a little bit, you know, I was a little hesitant about, I didn't want to mess up what was already so great about the game because it, it plays so well on a one-on-one experience that and and we were ambitious in thinking you know let's take this game that's already great in a one-on-one and i don't want to get ahead of ourselves but you know make it a co-op experience which is turning it completely on its head yeah it's one of the things that uh i i remember being equally scared (laughs) working together on this project because it is uh, such a departure from the kinds of work that I have ever done before and that I really anybody on the team had done before building a cooperative gameplay experience and let alone building a cooperative gameplay experience but building one that was living inside of, you know, built on top of this engine that really was intended to be a very v- sort of vicious uh, competitive experience uh, and streamlined for that. Uh, so it was one of those things that I think we took on in part because um, I had a lot of you know, faith in your abilities and you had, well, maybe not a background in designing for these sort of box experiences, certainly a lot of, uh, a lot of experience playing, uh, these box experiences and, and some of the co-op games. What, what served as inspiration for you as you were kind of working on this, uh, on this design? 
Yeah, so I've always loved Dungeons and Dragons uh, and other role playing games like that, and it's always been fun to have that joint experience of we're all working together in trying to take down the this, these big bads and getting that persistent um, upgrade abilities of your your characters as you're moving forward. And I do agree. It's it's strange that we decided to take that experience and put it into such a uh, one-on-one head-to-head game and like in but i i really enjoyed you know trying to rise to that challenge in the past i had actually when i was working at hex we had a bunch of dungeons where you were playing against different decks and you're slowly building towards a climax and i i really enjoyed creating challenges for players and some of that carried over here. Um, the new element, of course, was that cooperative experience that we're all working together. Yeah, yeah. And I had I had, had similar kinds of backgrounds back when I was working on the World of Warcraft trading card game and World of Warcraft miniatures game. We had built sort of PvE style experiences or many versus one style experiences with like the Anixia raids and other things. So I had gotten some exposure to that type of design um, back then. But in this version where it's a complete, you know, the whole game's in a box experience and you're, you know, really sort of pushing people through um, not just one encounter, you know, or one, but a, really a multi-tiered story with many encounters and modal choices. And it was really uh, the project. We knew it was going to be a lot of work, but it ended up being uh, even more than we had thought, I think, to get it. And and I'm, I'm so super excited with where we landed, but uh, I want to, I want to sort of piece out some of these some of these lessons so you know i remember when we were first working on uh some of these initial encounters um we we realized pretty quickly that we needed each one to sort of feel unique and somehow change up the core of the game uh when you're approaching that challenge maybe give an example of one of them and like kind of think about how you thought about about approaching that with some of these encounters yeah so i i totally agree i i think that you have to come up with what is it that's going to make this feel different than any any of these other co-op experiences that we're doing? And it's important to have, and hand-in-hand hand with that, it's important to have friction on the players so that they're not just buying the same things that they're normally buying every, every time that they play. And so you end up with, um, I, f- I found that that was the key, I think, that w- to unlocking how we're going to make each of these different was saying, hey, we're going to make it more difficult for you to just try to put your head down and not pay attention to what's going on through different means. Um, for example, our tr- the Trapper, which is one of the first characters that you'll, you'll battle, um, ended up having all these different traps where you it's trying to pigeonhole you into you have to buy this type of card. If you don't, you're going to get punished for that. And by kind of like theming that whole encounter around these traps where you, you're being forced to buy things that normally wouldn't go into your deck, you're suddenly not able to just put your head down and just say, Hey, I'm only going to buy this type of card because that's the type of deck I'm building. But, but I, but taking that further, like we ended up coming up with other ways that other bosses would mess with the players in, in various ways. And I, I feel like that was very key 
to yeah yeah i want to dig in i want to dig into some of that because so so vendandi i uh, believe is what we ended up calling the trapper uh right. which Vendandi was our, Omega. yeah uh which was our um you know the the sort of basic name that he lays these traps for you and and that you have to sort of work to get around them and it's and it's two two things here one is this idea of tension and frustration uh so often i think players or new designers don't realize like that's like the heart of the whole job is creating and relieving tension in games, right? Mm-hmm. That you're creating these scenarios where it's like, okay, I really want to do this. This is my, this is my core thing. And then we can put all these roadblocks in front of you that force you to like dance around them and interact in different ways. Right. And the same is true, obviously in, in the PVP games and in a deck building game, you, you want to scale your deck and have your strategy arc in a in a clear direction that's going to you know exponentially grow and do awesome things but your opponent is obviously trying to do the same thing and you often need to like you know interact with the center row or or slow them down to stop them from doing what they're doing and there's this sort of back and forth that's very strong in shards of infinity and this now takes a different kind of tactic on that because you don't have the other players to mess with you or to sort of force your strategies to to adapt so we have to find ways for these kind of and you know npc villains to do so and one of the things i found really interesting as we were doing this is like the the types of things that you can let a player do to another player versus the types of things that you can let an npc sort of automated villain do to a player uh, are very very different you want to talk about your thoughts on that on that kind of distinction oh definitely yeah um i think you can actually get away with a lot more when it's a when it's a boss that's being driven by some sort of randomness, as opposed to I'm doing this to you. It feels much more invasive whenever um, a player is forcing you to do something than this unguided hand of this villain is doing that same thing. It also allowed us to do things that were, um, it felt like you were being attacked, but Ultimately, it was not necessarily as bad. Like some of the card passing, I thought was interesting in that it, it feels bad to lose one of your cards, but because it's a, it, you're still playing in a co-op experience, at least your team still has those types of cards. So you. So just just to clarify, so this is where a one of the effects from the villains or right. one of the monsters causes you to pass cards from your own hand or your own deck to another player. Right, and you know, like you permanently lose that card. And, right, and disrupt your strategy, which you 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 know you were probably you had that card because it was optimal for your deck, but now it's going to somebody else. Exactly. Yeah. So that helps b- throw some of those monkey wrenches into the machine that players are building, and I feel like that would n- that would be very very invasive and would feel very bad if one of your best cards went to your opponent. However, luckily we have because we built it as a co op experience. While it's while it doesn't feel great to lose your best card, at least somebody on your team is still utilizing it, and maybe they're not utilizing it as well. But that's one of those you know those roadblocks where okay, well maybe now we have to change our strategy because I don't have the card now. Now Justin, you've you've gotten my really good card that you know works well with this certain strategy, but now maybe it's time for you to start utilizing that. And it. it the more times you you give players that chance to like pivot and try to reevaluate where they're at and move forward, I think I think that's that is so much fun. That those moments of hey, we have to change our strategy. 
right now because this monkey wrench. I think that's so much fun to rise to those challenges. Yeah, and, and it's really where I think Shadow of Salvation differentiates itself from the other entries into the Shards of Infinity Universe, or really almost any deck building game that I've played. It's that these challenges are there that like force you as a team to have to adapt. And not only it, you know, we basically ended up designing like six entire mini games, right? Because the, the campaign mode, which people can find online, uh, we actually have an audio book on our website, stoneblade.com, where you can like, uh, you know, go through the story and click on the different parts that are there and, and follow along with the book in the game. And then, you know, each cha each chapter of the three chapters, you pick one of the two encounters you want to go through. And then that has its own set of challenges, its own strategy that you have to, like, deconstruct and play. And then, of course, there's all the different things that change within each encounter of the order of cards come up and which cards you buy and then which cards you save and modify for your deck. And so it just creates this, like, one of our main goals for this was to really have as much replayability as possible for a story-based game, which is really challenging, right? There's a lot of great games out there and that that where they have this awesome story that's kind of linear but then once you play through it it's very hard to like come back to that and so when you were like thinking about replayability and how we build that into this structure what were other factors that were going on for for how you built this one of the nice things is that shards is so replayable out of the box like just as a head-to-head -head game that a lot of that carries over to whenever you're playing through the co-op experience because you can't you're not necessarily going to be able to rely on building the exact same deck as last time um but as far as the villain side of things we want to make sure that because we built um the villains run off of their own deck so at the same time while you're getting the chaos and the randomness of what's going to be available to buy you also have that randomness of what challenges you're going to have to face on every single round. And I think that the combination of those two things like work together really well to make every time that you sit down to play a little bit different. And sometimes the you're going to have to change the pace of the play that, you, that you've taken into a certain encounter because suddenly the villain is ramping up in one aspect and you now have to say, okay, it's time to, it's go time. We have, we have to go right now. And other, other times you can kind of, you know, take a little bit more time. And there's also the aspect of the upgrade cards that we included. So not necessarily on the first encounter, but after that, like your deck is different uh, at the very beginning of the game. So you might change completely how you're playing between um, this time that you've played and the last time that you played with a different play group because right. you have a new, brand new card in your deck. And so for, for, for the audience that hasn't been exposed to this, so what we're talking about is there are cards after the end of each encounter, you can, what we call saved cards, where you can pick a new card that it gets permanently added to your starting deck for the rest of the campaign. And so your starting deck itself will change over time and therefore your entire uh, gameplay, of course, is going to be influenced by having these sort of pre-built cards into your deck, and that and you're given a subset, so you can never guarantee you're going to have the same ones. So, and they build on each other, so it, it it snowballs into very different directions over time. Yeah, definitely. Like sometimes you'll end up like starting off with game, extra mastery, and then you'll want to be the guy who's finding new ways to build mastery uh, faster. And 
And other times, like, you're just the power guy and you're just trying to deal with all the different monsters that are coming out. The different shadow champions, excuse me. <laughs> yeah. So you're, we're, we're constantly dancing around our... Uh, the, one of the challenges of, as a game designer is that you have your playtest names that you use uh, throughout the entirety of your development process. And then uh, towards the end, we start putting real names on things. And most of the time, this is actually really... When I'm, you know, even at conventions and people start talking about a card and they'll start talking about card interactions and ask me questions, and they're like using their real names because obviously that's all they know. And I have no idea what they're talking about. <laughs> it's like, oh, no, no, that was that was Elon Musk and the uh, trap monster. Monster. I'm like, oh, okay, I know what we're talking about now. <laughs> so, yeah, 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 exactly. Like, I'm, I'm sitting down here and I'm like, right, we had the hacker and the, and none of these names make any sense anymore. Oh yeah, no, I actually had to bring up the spreadsheet uh, and I have in front of me for the, uh, for the game, <laughs> so I can remember the actual oh, names as we're talking. Perfect. Uh, <laughs> I should have done that as well, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, this is uh, you know, game designer struggles. Oh yeah. Uh, <laughs> Uh, so there's one, uh, you know, I, I, you know, we're talking a lot of specifics about, you know, this game and this design, but I really, I, you know, I try for, for, I mean, hopefully many people in our audience are familiar with Shards of Infinity and hopefully they're all picking up Shadow of Salvation, which should be just coming out around the time this podcast goes live. But, but I really want to be able to, you know, have the, um, the principles from here that apply to you, regardless of what you care about, uh, you know, whether you care about this specific game or not. So the, the next thing I want to talk about is, is a challenge that we really wrestled with a lot during this process, which is how do you develop a game like this? Like how, what do you, how do you think about balance when it's a player versus, you know, environment encounter when you're, we're all cooperative, but it, the game could be two to four players. Um, and, and, you know, we have a variety of different scenarios coming up. Um, how did we, how did you think about it? Or let's start that conversation. Uh, Cause I think there's a lot of lessons to derive from that. Yeah. I think there's a lot of, interesting ways of approaching that the first thing we did was we we knew that we wanted to scale from at least two up to four maybe five players whenever we were approaching this so we we knew that we wanted to have some way that every single player is going to have something that scales up the difficulty as well so that's how we ended up making the shadow deck where the villain has all of their different abilities and shadow champions that creates difficulty for the players and create those challenges. And throughout the time we were playing, we, I think it came kind of went up and down in difficulty and we were, we had a lot of debates over how difficult to make it because obviously we don't want to make it a cakewalk because then you don't have that feeling of things are difficult and we're If there's no challenge, then there's really not a lot of fun there. However, on the flip side, if we make it uh, too difficult, then you just knock everybody out right at the beginning and nobody really wants to play the game because it's, if, if you're just getting shut down right away, then you also don't, you feel like you can't even get in the door. Right. Finding that sweet spot of difficulty uh, is, is, is key. And then, right. uh, and you know, we have a couple of other factors when you're working with, First of all, obviously, we don't know the the skill level of the players that are going to be playing the game. Uh, Certainly. And while Shadow of Salvation requires you to have purchased Shards of Infinity prior to playing it, so presumably you're at least somewhat familiar with the game, there's pretty wide levels of skill um, that you can be developing around. 
And the question of like, who should we be targeting really primarily? How do we make sure we land in the right place for the novice player versus the mid-level player versus the advanced player to hit that sweet spot of, of, of skill uh, was something we wrestled with a lot. And, uh, you know, we kind of <laughs> backed into an interesting solution for that, I feel like, um, where not only did we have the, you know, sort of the variance within each game, but we ended up with a, you know, our story actually kind of gave us an out uh, to give us some some leverage there. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, certainly. So the the story that we're doing is kind of a time travel story. We have the new character, Rez, who's from a brand new faction, coming back in time to prevent a future calamity, similar to the Terminator or other time travel tales. And one thing that we, and what we figured out was that since he's a time traveler, he should be able to reset, you know, if things go dangerous or disastrously for the players. So what he does is he'll just rewind time. But when you rewind that time after a loss, you also get to take a, you're, you're saving, you're bringing back a card with you. So those same saved cards that we said that you get from defeating encounters, you also get one even when you fail, which was, which ended up being a great balancing mechanic for, you know, for play groups that may not be as skilled. At least they'll be able to play again, but with a brand new card in their deck or two or three cards, if that's what's necessary in order to get them to move forward in the story. And it doesn't take much. It doesn't take a, very many cards to vastly improve a, a starting deck. That's for sure. Yeah, so it's it's you know one it, yeah it creates this, this this clever option for us where you know we were able to get some of the best of both worlds where we could make the encounter pretty challenging so that even skilled players will you know have trouble getting through you know or make it have it be exciting, um, but also make sure that there's an escape valve if you will for for more uh, casual players or less skilled players to be able to catch up, and and we also were able to scale difficulty because it's a three encounter campaign we were able to scale the difficulty from encounter to encounter where the first tier encounter most people should be able to beat without too much difficulty the second encounter is much harder and the third encounter is pretty you know you're even the best players are not going to get through it every time and you're going to have a you know you're going to hit a wall depending upon how things go um but i want to also tie into another issue which is something that that was i think unique to the fact that we did this as a deck building game um and that made it even more challenging which is that deck building games as I mentioned earlier, have this exponential curve of power, right? Mm -hmm. The whole point of a deck building game is that I'm adding more cards to my deck, which make it easier and better for me to add even more cards to my deck and scale more power and so on and so on. And so that it, it at a certain point, the players become so astronomically powerful. I mean, in it's shards of infinity in the normal game, you would just have infinite power and just kill everything uh, that no matter what the boss could do would just be crushed by the players and the player efficiency but there's this earlier period where that's you know not the case at all and so trying to find a boss that could like scale properly with the players was something we spent a lot of time on um you want to talk a little bit about kind of how we approach that problem yeah we definitely tried to make sure that the early uh 
we're talking about the different villains or I'm sorry. Yeah. Well, so like the villains, like we ended up using the, the mastery track from shards to scale the villains oh, actually sure, ended sure, up yeah. mastery on their own to scale along with the players. Yes, definitely. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, we definitely wanted to make sure that the villains were playing on kind of the same axes that the players did. So we ended up giving them their own mastery track and, but instead of putting it uh, all on the cards we also gave them like kind of a player sheet or a villain sheet in this case where as they hit certain thresholds different abilities would happen or they would get new passives which would make the game harder the longer the players let the time time go on uh, also the shadow monsters would also be dealing more damage or be doing more nasty things like making players discard cards or even banish cards that um, they wanted to keep yeah, and so that we were able to sort of create that same sense of like scale and exponential growth for the for the bad guys as the as the good guys are experiencing, and and it you know I definitely feel as we play that there's that there's that tension of like are we going to like cross this threshold where the players are strong enough and they can kill the boss before the boss gets too strong and then the players have no chance left, and so uh, it's been a fun it's a fun experience to play through. Yeah, sometimes you're like, okay, well we can leave this. Uh, shadow champion here however if the boss gains like two more mastery that thing is going to deal like 20 damage and that's that's hard to that's hard to just like leave on the table whenever uh you're kind of as a group you guys are deciding how to split up all the damage yeah all right well we've 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 dug deep into uh shadow salvation which i love and i can't wait for everybody to kind of play we got to show it off at, at gen con this past year and, and people seem to love it but we only had very few copies that were gone in hours uh so getting this actually into players hands and seeing how they how they like this experience is going to be is going to be pretty awesome and uh must be pretty exciting uh for you as your your first lead design of a physical box product oh yeah i am beyond excited to see this thing and have have my own copy in my hands even yeah like i don't even i, I don't even have one i wasn't even able to get one from uh gen con yeah they were gone real fast um uh so now that you know you've worked on you know some box products you've worked on you know several of the, of the ascension expansions and a variety of other things as well as digital products um and and sort of collective games what how do you view the difference now between working on physical products versus digital products or even you know this sort of open-ended kind of collectible things versus versus box games you can tackle either question <laughs> sure uh digital really makes you think differently um you have to think about how the user is going to experience things in a very, in a different way than you do in a physical product. Because in a physical product, whenever you're building something that you're going to play test with, you have it right there in your hand. And like what you build is exactly what players will see. When it comes to digital products, sometimes it's not, that's not exactly the case. Sometimes you, on the back end, you're doing things that, the players don't actually see what's going on and it's very interesting to get those distinctions and make sure that the, um, the player experience is great for depending on what product you're actually working on. So I, I want to dig into that a little bit. Cause I, I, my, my instinct is to some degree the opposite, right? But on a base level, on a digital game, like I get to control your on-ramping experience and everything you see in a very fine detail. 
um, right? I could just t say, first, do we do this tutorial step? Then we do this thing. Then we unlock this thing. Whereas in a box game and a physical game, it's much harder in that you open the box and here's all the things. And if you're shuffling up a deck to deal stuff out, I can't control, you know, that you're only going to see the easiest cards first or you're only going to see the certain experience first. So what is it when you say that the digital is 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 less controlled? What what do you mean by that? Or just... Well, um, so I, I totally agree with what you're saying. The um, what, when you're first being on-ramped onto a product, it's much easier uh, in digital because you actually have that arbiter of like, you're never going to accidentally break a rule in a digital game because the game itself is keeping the rules straight. The, um, the thing that I found that was interesting when working more in the digital was that sometimes it was, sometimes you would make a card and because we, we when I worked on Hex, we played almost everything physical before we could ever get anything into the computer and actually play it digitally. And sometimes you make a card that's completely simple to use in um, in physical, but in digital, you have to think about how it's going to be to interact with that card. For example, if you had a card that said, say, click on this, uh, pay one resource, depending on whatever game you're playing, and this gets a bonus. By doing it uh, in a digital world where you have to click on that card, you know, eight times in order to give it a bonus, it's it actually, like, you, you don't realize it when you're playing physically because you just go, I'm going to use this eight times. Whereas once you actually have that experience of playing it digitally, you're like, oh, this is actually, like, not very fun to have to click on this card eight times. And, you know, that's just a very simple example of it. But there's a lot of different types of cards that we realized, oh, you shouldn't actually make a card like this because the actual click count uh, or other various things about the card, the, the play experience of that card is like, it's just not, it's not something that you actually want to have, have a player interact with. Gotcha. So a lot of this is sort of user experience and user interface design. Exactly. And, yeah. that, and, and, and a consequence of the fact that when you're doing your design and development, and this is something I talk about, even if you are working on a digital game, a lot, most of the time you want to be starting with physical cards and physical design and development, because that's just way faster to iterate on. And you don't know for sure when you're working on the physical prototype, what it's going to feel like when you're in the digital world. Exactly. Yeah. You have to think about how it is, how, how, it, how you're going to interact with this type of thing in a digital world. Um, so things that are like requiring players to constantly um, upkeep a card is a pretty negative experience from, from what we were doing. Right. Gotcha. So I think that um, that makes a lot of sense. And then there's, you know, strengths and weaknesses to both platforms when it comes to that, right? So the digital side obviously can track a lot of more data and it automatically shows you what's happening when cards are being modified or there's some confusing behind the scenes mathematics behind an interaction it can handle all of that stuff easily those things become very cumbersome in the physical world but in the physical world you can do things that are just like you said simple right like okay yeah i'll use this eight times this ability eight times or the the card will just tell you what to do and a player can understand that whereas in the physical world it can be very cumbersome to program and build and make it work within the interfaces that exists. Or I think one of the interesting recent examples I've noticed is that, you know, um, for magic 
the gathering when most of the time before when you would like look at cards and then put cards on the bottom of your deck you would just put them in the order you wanted uh and then in the digital world doing that is a real pain in the butt and ended up taking a while and delaying things and i've noticed they've changed the designs recently to making putting cards on the bottom of your deck in a random order uh for and i think that largely because of the impact on digital yeah there's a um i mean even even pulling back from that like talking about the magic online versus magic arena just like just tapping your lands like Magic Online, you have to physically tap each of your lands in order to create the mana. Whereas Arena, they you know they're trying to streamline that, and it's it. right. And you and you lose and you do lose something when you make those streamlines. Like there are a lot of times the you know they'll tap lands incorrectly, or your your the, oh, yeah. the auto skip function uh, gives away information, or you have like delays that gives away information, or there's all these like little things that are like. You know, you lose something out of the experience, but the the net result is that they've streamlined it for digital in a way that's like pretty, you know, pretty amazing and awesome. And it was uh, I agree with almost every design choice that that they've made on that team. Uh, but it, there are real trade offs, and there you know elements of the physical game that that get lost when you really try to build something for digital and vice versa. Yeah, definitely the um, the way that you interact with cards is just so different. I I mean, even like. There's even some cards that they they've even said that they were not going to try to make a card like this because digital exists. Um, <laughs> I kind of there. There's been some cards where I I did have a fun spot in my heart where it would randomly or everybody has to like separate their three their all their cards in play into three piles and it destroys one of the piles at random and the cumbersome nature of having to do that in a digital format they've they've written an article about how we were not going to do cards like this anymore sure yeah i think there's a lot of interesting um other little elements about the things that you can do for digital like one of the things i think um hearthstone does a really good job with is like their like big effects are like super like animated and things are flying around the screen and there's all this cool like you know the the sort of bells and whistles around it can really be uh you know a lot of the payoff just entirely on its own uh which is not something you really have as a tool when you're working in physical games um or you know you don't have a budget like blizzard i guess Uh, (laughs) yeah for sure for sure the um there is something to the visual nature of some things um definitely well when you're building uh out games how much thought do you put in the so i think you know working with you as long as i have i think you know you and i are similarly very mechanics first kind of designers um but you know how much thought do you put into the aesthetics or the theme or components and stuff when you're doing when you're doing your own designs is that something that's like been changing over time or are there scenario you know is there a story of a time when that that's really influenced you i think um for me personally i think theme is very extremely important i think that's one of the most important things to me even like if i if like I think it's important to find the mechanical hook that you're looking for but you want to be able to make sure that it can be layered onto something that actually resonates i think that having the marriage of mechanics and thematic is one of the most important things for me as a designer i find it important to like even if i were to like create a a role-playing game i want a sword 
to feel different than like a hammer. Like I want there to be a mechanical difference between those two things. And like, I might feel like because of this mechanic, I'm like, yeah, this feels like swinging a hammer. Whereas this feels like swinging a sword. And I think there's, I think that's just like a very visceral thing that's hard to like exactly explain how that feels, but like it, I, I find it to be always a challenge, but always so rewarding whenever you can have somebody say like, yes, this is what it feels like to swing a hammer in this type of like role-playing game or anything like that. I've always, I was always disappointed whenever like in Dungeons and Dragons, like it's just a different stat block. Like this one deals one more damage, but it's less likely to hit. It's like, oh, it's so boring. Why, why isn't this hammer actually like crushing this armor or, you know, why isn't this slicing through? I think that's, um, I think that's super important in order to get things feeling right. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's often a trade off in that world, um, between getting that fine tuned, you know, theme and mechanic working, and then the sort of complexity and number of edge cases you end up having introduced in those worlds. Yeah, no, definitely. Like you don't want to make it so it's like, okay, well, if somebody's playing this or wearing this type of armor, then they're, this is going to deal extra damage. Like, I don't know. I I think it's interesting where like, it's, it's important to come up with very simple ways of making this feel different. And uh, trying to make the difference between two things uh, important, but as simple as possible. It, I think that's one of the most challenging things, and and again, one one of the most rewarding things. Yeah, there's there's, there's a couple of pieces to pick out from that. One is I think it it actually this is another thing that emphasizes like the difference between a digital game and a physical game. Like I think in a digital game, you can like, you could get a lot more detailed in like how those distinctions work. Like you can have, because the, the hard work is in the background in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. right? You can have games like civilization where there's like a million different subparts of things that are happening. That's like, if you want to dive deep, you can dive deep. Or if you want to just play at a surface level, you can play it as a surface level and it's fine. It all just works. Or um, battle tech is an interesting example, right? So that's like a role-playing game that has, a very detailed thing about like heat sinks and each of your pieces of armor and how attacks can strike in different things and missiles work different than lasers and lasers work different than you know like a, a power sword and and i i was like oh this is so cool i loved reading the books but like actually playing it was like spreadsheets the game uh <laughs> and that didn't sound like fun to me but playing you know you could play it online and they actually just released i think recently a, a battle tech online that's super cool um because you can like you know, again you can i think giving players the feeling and the option to sort of deep dive into something and have it feel that that verisimilitude that feeling like it's this is real this is how it would be in real life or this is the thematically correct thing but not putting them in a position where unless they are going deep down that rabbit hole they're not going to be able to figure out what's going on uh is is really that key Mm -hmm. yeah no definitely I think um, maybe it'd be illustrative to to highlight some of the games that that you love um, that you don't work on. What was it? What other kind of games? Obviously, Magic. We've talked about. Um, uh, and what other games are, are take up a lot of your time and attention, and you kind of aspire towards as a, as good examples out there? I am a sucker for a good uh, card card based uh, roguelike, uh, such as Slay the Spire. Yeah, I think those. I think a lot of those games, like they're still kind of in the same uh, family as like TCGs and other card games, 
but they they do such a good job of having that feeling of I'm getting better through upgrading my deck and I I think they do a great job of like making like for example in that game when I was talking about hammers versus swords like those things actually do very different things like a rogue using a dagger is going to draw cards but deal less damage whereas you know a sword is going to deal more damage and that's always that's always such an interesting distinction to me even though it's like it feels very minor when you just talk about it but the feel of playing cards in a certain way uh definitely plays differently well yeah and and and, and this is there's another uh, that's a great example and we can we can spend some time dissecting it but there's another example um of of a design trick which is that why is why is drawing a card feel like a dagger they're not they're not alike at all that doesn't make any sense but what you've done is when you establish your design language and you're establishing like no 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 what we mean when we say you're you know you're going to have more options because you draw cards and you're going to do less damage versus a sword that just does more damage you're like okay well now i can kind of see that there's a there's this connection that what a dagger is fast so it's yes, i get an extra exactly. card and that's how what yeah, it you're, you're doing this fast. quick strike that's what it means right and and we and you say quick strike and it's small damage draw a card or get an extra action or whatever like and we start you start to establish the link in the player's mind so that when they get introduced to another dagger down the road or a you know rapid attack or whatever they're going to have expectations and now it feels like a dagger it feels like a quick attack and that i think is really important um one of the examples that came to mind is when we were in uh i was working on the versus system trading card game which was like all the marvel and dc characters we used um, all the underwater characters, you know, Aquaman and Namor or whatever, we use the discard pile to represent the ocean. So they would always yeah, have things that, that interact with the discard pile. And uh, again, that's not a natural association anybody has. Like, why is my discard pile the ocean? But once you saw it enough times, every time you saw a, you know, character that was focused on water powers or the ocean, you know, whatever, that this is what would happen. And so, so now it created this story and it's like, oh yeah, cool. That feels like Aquaman. He's going swimming and picking cards out of the, out of, out of the discard pile. It's like, sure uh so yeah using using mechanics to establish the theme i think is yeah i think that's one of the one of my favorite things and when creating a new game and finding new design areas and and saying okay well this means fire in this world and this is lightning and like one of my one of my most cherished memories uh from gaming was the first time i ever played final fantasy 7 i as a kid, I just was not that into RPGs or video games in general. But the first time I played the demo for Final Fantasy VII, and I had the option of ice, fire, and lightning. And I, I click one of them, and it, it does the animation. And all three of them were the exact same, but that animation made it feel so different. And so, it, and it's so, but if it would have done just like a little bit different in each of those, uh, like fire adds like damage over time or ice like might stun you. Uh, I, I think that helps establish exactly what you're, what you're building between those, uh, those different differentiations of this deals damage. Yeah. I want to, I want to dig further into the, the roguelike deck builder kind of genre and what it means in general for, for our industry. And, and maybe who knows, maybe we'll dig into some fun little design brainstorms here. I I think that I love the fact that the 
concept of sort of deck building and, you know, either, you know, from collectible cards world to the deck building genre has now sort of pervaded all different kinds of genres. And it's entered into, you know, a sort of a piece of, of game grammar, if you will, you know, the same way that sure. like connect three, you know, bejeweled type things are now <laughs> everywhere. And it's just like a subset of a, of a block you can put into other games. And I think the seeing the roguelike progression is, is pretty awesome and seeing it in a variety of other places crop up. I, uh, I think that, you know, we've spent some time talking about this, but really trying to figure out how do we take, you know, I know that the designer of, of roguelike, he's mentioned Ascension as one of his inspirations. And now roguelike, I, you know, if we were going to use roguelike as an inspiration, if you right now live on this podcast, we're going to use roguelike as an inspiration to make your own next level style of this game. How would you approach that? Oh, man. Um, for me, I think. Let's put you on the spot. <laughs> Yeah, right on the spot. Um, I think what I'd want to do is I'd want to like include the player in building the cards a little bit more. I know a lot of the these games allow you to uh, upgrade cards, and I think that's cool and all. But I think like actually being able to like uh, I actually played one one of these roguelike card games. was like okay this is pretty interesting what what's going on here and i think that there's something to like allowing players to completely shape the cards that they're putting into their deck and kind of build them the the way that exactly they want to with that but i think i mean obviously you need to be careful about that because you don't want to make it again turn into some type of spreadsheet where i have to i have 80 different um variables on this card that i have to manage sure well i mean didn't hex have a have a system kind of like this where you could like socket effects into cards or something like that we had, yeah we had ways where you, like on certain creatures you could socket in like a keyword gotcha. um which i i think is not quite where i wanted where i'd want to be like later on we did do fusion troops which was fun that was take these two creatures and literally combine them together combine their costs and stats and everything. So is that the and kind I think of thing you're thinking about that would maybe even... Yeah, I think, like, ever since we made that, I was like, oh, this is... There's there's definitely something to this. Like, being able to combine these things, having that feeling of I'm combining these things together to make exactly what I want, I think is interesting. Well, and I think there's another. I think there's another route to do it too, where maybe you give cards something like a sphere grid, like a simplified sphere grid or battle grid where you could upgrade or add certain abilities to each card. What do you mean by sphere grid or battle grid? Oh, okay. So uh, in Final Fantasy X or Path of Exile, they have these very complicated maps of abilities on cards that uh, you can add additional ability. Or Generally, they were just on your character, but I'm thinking like more abstractly like on a card. You can open up this card and there's like, a different there's like three or four different things you can choose to add to this card right it's sort of, sort of an upgrade tree that you know can kind of go yeah. down different paths. yeah I, I guess that's close enough just an upgrade tree to each card would be um 
an interesting way of approaching. Yeah, and and genre. I, I want to tie this back into some of our earlier conversation too, because like I agree with you. Like my first instinct when I hear something like that is like, oh man, that's going to be really hard to balance, and like being you know giving people that freedom and flexibility without it being something that's just going to get like super degenerate super quickly, um, is is a is a challenge. But when you think about something like Slay the Spire, and you think about our previous conversation about like PVE campaign challenges and development versus PVP, like. I'm I'm inclined to think you can get away with just a lot more of that. Like let people play with these random things, but control like how often they're able to get those those ludicrous combos, right? Sometimes you play Slay the Spire and you just get this just busted deck that you could just crush everything and it's like super trivial to go through the campaign. And other times it is super impossible to get through the campaign. Uh and and so there's this interesting um that I think a more wiggle room, if you will, to give people that freedom to customize and just more variety of experience to keep coming back and coming back and coming back is worth a ton. And so I feel like there's actually quite a bit of space here that hasn't been explored. Yeah, I think you're completely allowed to people break to quote unquote break the game, especially in a roguelike game, because there's an end. Eventually, the player will have to restart. And even though they broke it this time, you know, next time they're not going to have the same options. Everything's going to be changed. There's all these moving parts that you're not going to be able to necessarily do exactly what you did last time. Yeah, I think that that's um, that's both a key uh, to creating that replayability, but there's also um, a challenge that comes with it. I'd like to hear you talk about a little bit, which is you know, with these roguelikes and these experiences, they're yes, they're start over and they're a variety every time, just like in a in a tabletop deck building game experience but then once it's over you feel you lose that entire sense of progress you lose that entire sense of what's going on and so each thing is kind of bite-sized i mean i remember i got super obsessed with slay the spire for a while played it a ton kind of felt like i'd done it been there done that and then put it aside and i haven't picked it up in a while although this conversation is going to make me want to play it again uh <laughs> but uh do you think there's ways to sort of maybe get more of that feeling of long-term progression or other things that kind of some kind of persistence or thing that's going to keep people hooked in the long term. Like, you know, when it comes to deck deck building games or tabletop games, there's the the social aspect and the community aspect that I'm playing against other people. But in a game that's like a solo experience, is it are there ways to you think about making that more compelling and more more connective over the long term? Yeah, you know, a lot. One one thing a lot of the roguelikes do, and I I think Slay of the Spire does this a little bit, but not nearly as much as others in the genre, is giving you permanent unlocks uh, as you've played. Um, I think for for the first few games of Slay of the Spire, you you're unlocking new cards, but obviously there's a point where you know they can't just they can't have you unlocking 300 cards or whatever. And I don't think I. I think in that style of game, you, you don't want to be, you know, doing that for forever because for various, I mean, you want players that have access to everything at, at, a, at a fairly early point in the game. But I, I don't know, maybe there's some sort of like Hall of Fame mode where you retire these characters and they have some type of ongoing effect that might help you in the long run, or maybe you can call them in at some point in the future. I definitely like the idea of like after you've finished with this character that's that was amazing like you you remember this run for a, you know for the entire time that you're playing the game trying to relive the glory. <laughs> I think there is definitely some sadness in that like you're never going to get back to that but and that the game doesn't commem- commemorate very well those things. I think 
having some sort of like hall of champions that may or may not actually affect your game or maybe you, at some point you'll be able to recall that that character and play through a harder mode using that deck um would be interesting yeah that sounds kind of cool i also think your idea about like creating more modular um cards that you can modify over time i think is uh potentially another piece to this puzzle right because like sure, that, yeah, yeah, one definitely. thing is like all right well yeah i can unlock cards that don't exist but how many cards is the you know are we going to design and how often or how long are we going to keep people from them is going to provide a natural cap to that progression. But then if it's like, no, no, actually now you start modifying cards, you start building your own cards and each run lets you build a new card that didn't exist before. And, and now that, so there's this sort of potentially truly limitless progression, or at least, you know, functionally limitless uh, of the number of, of, of different things you could do and create and change um, that. Yeah, you can get, you can build quite a different, quite a few systems in order to, allow cards to keep evolving and be, keep becoming more and more powerful. I also think there's just something about the social part of, you know, card games, deck building games, things in general, that maybe there's still a way to integrate. You know, I like the fact that Slay the Spire and, and those roguelikes are, are solo experiences, um, but I kind of want there to be more ways. Um, you know, some tricks that I know they use are like they'll have their daily challenges and leaderboards and things that kind of like let you compare yourself to other players and sort of feel like you're connected to a community. Um, but I'd love to figure out ways to to make that connection stronger, you know, almost like where you could, you know, export your ex the exact dungeon you went through and have other people battle or build your own custom dungeon that people have to go through or vice versa. You know, there's like little, like there's, I feel like there's more space to explore there that would be really interesting. Oh, definitely. And I think, I mean... I thought you were going to go down this line, but I assumed that I I don't know exactly how it would work, but some sort of co-op version would be amazing. Yes. Well, that that obviously is something that uh, people want uh, and have asked for, uh, I think, explicitly for a while. And yeah, how do you build yeah. that properly? What does it look like? Mm -hmm. I could imagine both like, yeah, not only a co-op version where you're sort of battling the same things, but a version where you're all racing up the same dungeon tree at the same time uh, oh, sure. would be really interesting. And, you know, when you run into each other, what does that mean? And, and you know, feeling like that turning the thing to make it feel more alive, uh, I think would be really, really cool. Uh, yeah, it's interesting to think about. Like, I mean, even if it was like, I, <laughs> you know, you, you know, one of my favorite pastimes is throwing together a bunch of buzzwords, but like the battle Royale roguelike TC or, ccg just hasn't really been mined enough i agree with you completely <laughs> um yes no i think uh, but like if you had a bunch of people start on the same map and like they can move around all these nodes and upgrade their decks and eventually you run into each other and you have to battle each other yep yep well that's that's a lot to to build but sounds no, it's an ambitious project but that's never stopped us before <laughs> no never. if any of our listening audience wants to take a crack at it uh you can uh you know hit us up and uh message me on twitter and see what you got so you have to describe <laughs> your game in uh in the twitter limits and then uh we'll talk about it <laughs> um this has been awesome all right well i know uh we're going to continue design chats like this uh for for many many days and years to come uh, but it's been really fun to be able to do this in uh, in this format and uh, and share you as a designer, which many people may not be familiar with, uh, and all of your thoughts, which I've been super excited uh, to get to to know so well over the last year and a half or so. 
Um, if people do want to know more about you, other than me uh, bragging about you through Stoneblades uh, Communications, is there anywhere they can find you online or anything you'd want to point them to? Uh, I'm on the Twitters at at Sutherlord. At Sutherlord. Pretty, pretty yep. uh, ambitious name there. Thank you. <laughs> uh, I was the first Sutherlord. <laughs> I will not be the last. <laughs> um other than that that that's generally where to find me. yep and we'll uh you know we'll take you to uh take you out to the conventions uh a good good chunk of the times at least for uh gen con and uh uh and others but uh this has been awesome uh is there anything else you want to share uh before we uh we cut this off no no i just i really enjoyed this chat and i uh can't wait to see what else we got up our sleeves. Awesome. Well, this is a good time, and I'll uh, I'll see you Monday, and I'll see everybody in the listening audience in our next podcast next month. Thanks, Ryan. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. If you want to support the podcast, please rate, comment, and share on your favorite podcast platforms, such as iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever device you're listening on. Listener reviews and shares make a huge difference and help us grow this community and will allow me to bring more amazing guests and insights to you. I've taken the insights from these interviews along with my 20 years of experience in the game industry and compressed it all into a book with the same title as this podcast, Think Like a Game Designer. In it, I give step-by-step instructions on how to apply the lessons from these great designers and bring your own games to life. If you think you might be interested, you can check out the book at thinklikeagamedesigner.com or wherever fine books are sold.